The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, BBC Two goes back to the future with modern times. Plus, Maria Miller gets tough with Google and Facebook over explicit content on the web. Channel 4 launches its second screen app. And that Reese Ifans interview in The Times. Was it the worst ever? And we talk Game of Thrones and the Americans with The Guardian TV editor, Rebecca Nicholson. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And on this week's show, I'm joined by Mr. Jason Deans, editor of Media Guardian, and by broadcast editor Lisa Campbell. Welcome both. Hello. Hello. And uh, before we start, I've got to ask, have you checked your privileges? Uh, <laughs> Always. <laughs> I've spell-checked my privilege, because it's a hell of a word, isn't it? And I think I-L-E-G... Well, anyway, right. First up this week, BBC Two is going back to the future by reviving its modern times documentary strand. The observational documentary series, or DocuSoap if you prefer it that way, was axed by the then BBC Two controller Jane Root in 2001. Fast forward 12 years, aka the present day, and it's back with current controller... Janice Hadlow saying it walks softly and carries a big gun. Uh, Lisa, I think I know what she means by that. I, I usually I think it's a big stick, isn't it? But she went for the gun. Yes. A bit violent, I think. I, I, I like modern times. I think it's a good thing. Is it a good thing it's coming back? It's, think, a, it's a good thing. I think it is. I think it's a great example of television going full circle. I mean, the, the Strand was axed by Jane Reed, as you say, um, because it was seen as a straitjacket and that documentary makers needed more flexibility to produce standalone single films. And they could act as mini explosions, they were described as in, in the schedules. And I think this is a recognition that nowadays it's very difficult to be noticed as a standalone single film, let alone be a mini explosion. So I think you've got the benefit of the, you know, the marketing and publicity that goes with a strand. Um, I think it'll be good news for documentary makers and, and welcome news. I think that, you know, potentially an, an area of of concern is that in the past it was very much a strand for upcoming directors and, and young directors and they were really given the freedom to to tell their stories and to produce very authored and um, distinctive films and the suggestion is that times have really changed and directors aren't really being afforded that freedom anymore. Um, and it's actually a focus of debate at the Sheffield Doc Fest next week. So Directors UK have said, you know, this, is, this has been an issue for a couple of years amongst factual directors, um, the concerns that edit producers are now sort of sitting there cutting the rushes instead of the director. Um, and it's all to do with time and budget constraints. So, you know, so, so there's a big question there around that. Will, the, will they have the freedom that they were afforded in the past? So the, the brand name might come back, but the quality possibly not. Yeah, well, Jason, were you, were you a Modern Times viewer back in the day? What do you, what do you remember of them? I th- well, I think it was very... Uh, I watched some of them. I, I probably didn't watch that many. You know, this was a time before uh, we had Sky Plus and things. Um, I mean, I think it was very much a, a, you know, a creature of its time. I think it was introduced in the mid-90s to replace uh, 40 Minutes. And, and, you know, it was very, I think, to take a more arch, post-modern... For you know, for want of a better word, look at look at things, um, and and you do. Uh, I personally certainly do remember it for that sort of mid nineties era, uh, and I do wonder whether bringing it back. I think you know, having a documentary strand for all the reasons Lisa was explaining is is you know is a good idea, but uh, bringing back that particular, you know, modern times that particular brand. I don't know because it, you know those times have changed. I think it was very much of its of its time. So I wonder about that. Yeah, they were sort of more innocent times, weren't they, in a sense? And people were maybe, or maybe I'm deceiving myself, maybe in those days, back in the 90s, people were less self-aware and less aware they were on TV. So, for instance, I remember the Lido, the documentary in Brockwell Park, Lido in South London, where uh, 
uh, you got some fantastic footage. But would you get that today, or would people be you know really aware of the cameras there and play up to them and think, oh, you know, I'm going to become a star? Yeah, I think it's become a lot harder for program makers now to get the sort of authentic response from from contributors because they are so aware of the cameras and they they think that they're playing up the story. They're they're familiar with things like Jeopardy and everything that the TV producers looking for. Um, so I think you just have to hope that you've got very good program makers that can can get around that. And because I do think there's a real need for distinctive documentary making now, particularly with the the raft of sort of documentary series that we've been seeing, where they are very heavily formatted. I mean, even right down to the music and a personal bugbear of mine is the sort of Baltic Irish theme tune that was used in Big Fat Gypsy Wedding. So it was composer Ian Livingston. And now you hear that everywhere, whether it's, you know, sewing bees or the undateables. It's just this sort of formula. And I think what's interesting and exciting potentially about modern times is that it won't be formatted like that, that you will generally get that very distinctive voice coming through. Oh yes, we mentioned the sewing bee, Jason. Sewing bee coming back to uh, the great British Bake Off alike, coming back to BBC Two as is Bake Off, uh, as is uh, a series about Iceland. Uh, and we had we had Greg's on Sky, and now we have got a series about Iceland on BBC Two. I wonder who, who'd have thought that uh, you know, what's the polite phrase? Budget high street food retailers would be such a, a, a rich source of TV material right now. It's hard not to to suppress a truck tuckle when you see that. I mean, I mean, it, but it all depends on you know who they who they've got. You know, you know, and then the execution, isn't it? And presumably they've found. I mean, if you look at the uh, the BBC Three series, the the call centre, you know, which seems to be they, they seem to have found the real life David Brent, you know. Um, so it will be and a big sort of, hit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think I think Malcolm Walker is is the character. He's he's the guy that heads up Iceland, and he is the character that you're talking about that you really need in in those shows. And uh, I mean, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and he's just absolutely brilliant. You know, you'll get the sound bites that that you're looking for. So um, I'm I'm looking forward to that actually. When did you come across the Iceland Man on Broadcast Magazine? Uh, no, ago? when I was a marketing magazine, actually. Right. Yes. Right. I say he yes. hasn't got a radio station or a TV channel. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We'll have by the end of this. Yeah, yeah. We'll certainly have a. Probably a different agent. Uh, anyway, but sticking with BBC Four for a minute, there's a vacancy um, at the top of that channel. Janice Hadlow is currently overseeing uh, Four on an acting basis, and uh, suggestions, Lisa, that there might not be a, a full-time controller appointed, or if there is, then it'll be sort of slightly lower grade than it was when Richard Klein had the job, and that maybe Jan- Janice will have uh, an overarching role encompassing both. Yeah, I think well, I've got that right in a rather longer-winded way. <laughs> I think I think it makes sense um, because. The budget has been cut so much. I mean, it's about 30% taking it down by 10, 10 million to 26 million, which is not big for, for a, a whole channel. So there is less less work to do effectively. But I think Danny Cohen, the new director of television, his, his big thing is collaboration. And I think there's been concerns in the past that it hasn't really been the team spirit it needs to be, that, that sort of team of controllers. So I think by having Janice Hadlow overseeing BBC Two and overseeing Four will help just, I think, be more efficient and just someone having that kind of creative overview and having a channel editor, a sort of, you know, sort of more junior position overseeing things. I I think that totally makes sense. And it also, you know, it'll please the Daily Mail, money-saving opportunity. Ticks all those boxes. Yeah. And Jason, it kind of feels like there could be more synchronicity between the two channels in the way that ITV and ITV2 have spin-offs of Britain's Got Talent and whatever. When uh, BT2 next does Stargazing Stargazing Live or Airport Live, which is coming out, I'm very excited about with Dan Snow. Oh, I'm excited about that. I am, yeah, there could be a crash. (laughs) Uh, airport live uh, they can have more airport live um, what would it be take off delayed I don't know on uh, on BBC4 uh, which we don't really have at the minute uh, no absolutely um, plus although, one programs anyway. <clears throat> yeah although I think the uh, 
the more the way it's gone, isn't it? I think it's probably it's sort of art and history and an archive channel. So um, you know, airport. I mean, that's probably maybe a BBC Three thing, but uh, I mean, possibly yes. I mean, in terms of if that's if collaboration is the way they're going, and you can also already see in, in radio they've done this, where you know Bob Shannon is an overall charge of six music, so they follow a similar similar model, and you know, it, yes, it seems to make sense. In an area when they're looking to cut costs, the, the job isn't what it was creatively. It's not. It's not as. It's not as big a draw as it was. So. Not as when you originated an hour on four, and, and neither on two. I said to oh, Janet, absolutely. you know, or well, you're having a tough time in daytime at the minute because. Uh, and she said, well, we haven't got daytime anymore. You know, it's a, which is a frank admission, but it isn't, is it? It's just yeah. it's repeats and archive. Yeah. Which is- and, it, and it's interesting. The last the last um, biopic that's going to be on BBC Four is the Richard Burton and um, Elizabeth Taylor drama, which has a fantastic cast. You know, with Dominic West and, and Helena Bonham Carter, and you do wonder why that is on two anyway yeah, so yeah they're certainly going out with a bang but mm. yeah yeah there'll certainly be a big audience for that I imagine that will be their last one and and uh, probably the biggest audience mm. uh, well sticking with the BBC uh, more now on the corporation's digital media initiative fiasco or DMIF for short uh, the £100 million project was scrapped by Tony Hall after it became obvious that it wasn't going to work and the corporation he said had wasted a huge amount of licence fee payers money it's now been claimed that BBC Trust Chairman Lord Patton was warned a year ago that the DMI, as it was then, was doomed to fail by Bill Garrett. This was back in May 2012. He's a former head of technology, I think, at the BBC. Uh, and the scheme to create a tapeless future for the whole of the corporation was axed and the BBC's chief technology officer, John Linwood, suspended. Jason, it feels like this story sort of gets worse and worse for the BBC. It's not great, is it? And, and you know, when it, when it also, whenever um, you hear the words BBC and technology project, I mean, they always, you know... It's sort of a litany of disasters, really. Uh, they just don't seem to be, get them, to be able to get them right. I mean, in some ways, there are perhaps parallels with the um, the archive project. You know, to start with, the, the just it was just too, it just seems like you know too ambitious, really. The aspiration was uh, was laudable, but you know, to go to a, move to a tapeless content video content management system, the ambition was you know it was a bridge too far, or several bridges too far. And then it comes back to, yes to questions about the about the oversight of it, financial oversight, and whether they should have stepped in earlier or whether they should have scaled it back. So yes, Bill Garrett says that he uh, contacted the trust a year ago uh, to warn them about you know that it was heading for the rocks and that they took no notice. So and it it also puts more pressure on. Chris Patton, you know, who didn't come out of the uh, whole Savile scandal particularly well, you know, about his competence, really. Yeah, but uh, MPs, uh, well, particularly Tory MPs, I think Philip Davis, uh, Lisa, have been saying, uh, you know, Pat Patton again, sort of a, a sleepwalking trust, you know, not 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 hands on, not hands on enough. And going back to this idea that you know they're neither a proper regulator and not really a proper champion either. Mm. Well, you back know, to governance, his favourite topic. Yeah, well, a hundred million is a shocking amount of money to lose like that, and I think the fact that. Patton knew about this there were a lot of concerns about it at the time you know a year ago is is outrageous really and it should have been dealt with and at least Tony Hall has has taken swift and decisive action and just said right end it now and stop wasting any more money but shocking you wonder how much money you, you have to spend before you realise it's not going to work. You know, when it got to sort of... Good topic for a fly-on-the-wall documentary, maybe. You know, when it got to sort of <laughs> 75 million, was it like, well, come on, lads, let's give it another 25 million. I think we can break this thing. Because well, uh, yes, I think that, well, at the moment, yes, the, the question, the interesting question is just how much did they spend between the warnings last summer and, you know, actually realising, yeah, this is this is... This is a Ted duck. <laughs> yeah, yes. As I discovered in my garden last week, when you're in a hole, stop digging. And also this week, away from the BBC for a change, because we do do non-BBC stories, Channel 4 has revealed details of its much-anticipated, well, it certainly is here, second screen app. It will launch in July to the broadcaster's 8 million or so registered users and will enable them to take part in real-time votes, games and quizzes. 
Plus, advertisers will be able to target them with interactive content synced with the ads that are appearing on screen. So we two lots of commercials you can ignore and fast forward through. Uh, Lisa, wh- why is this so important to Channel 4? Uh, Well, Channel 4 is all about engaging uh, with the 16 to 34 audience particularly, and that's that's where they're at online. And so it's about how it's going to engage with those viewers. It's about collecting data, and so the advertisers can be more targeted in their advertising. And it's interesting that they've got about 6 million people who have signed up to the online Channel 4, and they're going to target them first with this. So almost creating this kind of club that, you know, you get the first access to this, and then they'll be rolling it out. So I I think it's quite savvy. I think it's, you know, it's user friendly. It's quite annoying having to download separate apps for separate programs. And then you you lose the audience in between the show. I think just having one central place is is a brilliant idea. And, and, you know, I think more people should do it. And Jason, this is a big initiative of Channel 4 Chief Executive David David Abraham is putting a lot of stead by this. But it seems to me the problem is that, uh, you know, people have already got a social media platform they can go onto Twitter, which isn't, you know, which isn't sort of uh, owned by Channel 4 in a sense. They've kind of got to break that down and encourage people to come to a, you know, a broadcaster owned app, which well, might be difficult. But Abraham's very enthusiastic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think um, um, and Channel 4, you know, I heard of the, I heard of the game on this. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's something David Abraham flagged up when he came in as, as, an, as a thing he was going to focus on. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know he, he said that um, audience data was going to be the big, you know, one of the big areas. So that's why they started the registration through 4OD and their website. And then, yes, and then, you know, this is the, another phase in trying to get, you know, u- using a uh, second screen to get, you know, to get cl- closer engagement. It's almost like a membership club. So, you, you know, you're close, more closely uh, engaged with the channel and with the channel's programming. And you're going to, you know, you're going to, like, you're more likely to think, I believe research shows that if, you know, if you're tweeting about a program or an ad, you're more, you know, you're more, like, or you're more likely to engage in terms of clicking through and, you know, e- e-commerce, buying things online. I think this is, they're looking at all sorts of opportunities like that. I think the, the commercial side of things is, is one story and perhaps that's the most interesting thing as far as Channel 4 is concerned at the moment but I do think that broadcasters are missing a trick in terms of the editorial benefits of second screen and you know there's Million Pound Drop which is a great example but there are not many others where there's examples of real innovation and I think you know having something in the future where one of the chairs on the voice can be controlled by you know, people at home via Twitter, so you can tweet to make the chair turn. You could extend that to News at 10 with Hugh Edwards, for instance, <laughs> just, you know, halfway through, keep him on his toes. Uh, but yeah, it feels to me that the, the extent of uh, a lot of broadcasters second screen, uh, Jason, is just, you know, hashtag Ignify on Have I Got News For You, for instance, or hashtag Question Time. That's, that's about it. But that in itself is incredibly simple, but quite valuable in that it can drive viewers to your TV show if you get it trending early enough uh, in your transmission time. I'm, I'm, I'm sure people like WPP will be able to show that with their, with their analysis. I think that. that's it's an area that, uh, well, so your Twitter is, so Twitter is, is, is already, you know, marketing itself. Uh, one of the questions about Twitter has been, you know, it's great, you know, old, well, certainly everybody in, everybody in media lands uses it, but how is it going to make money? But I think it's, it's now marketing itself as a platform or as a way the advertisers or broadcasters, particularly advertisers, you know, marketing people can get you know a more direct relationship with uh, with with the audience. Um, so they they throw you know so there's figures like apparently 60% uh, of UK users tweet while watching TV, 40% of all Twitter traffic in peak time uh, in the evening is is about television. You know, so there is a very there's clearly a very symbiotic relationship, and uh, but everybody's just trying to work out, as as Lisa was saying, you know, editorially this. You know, a lot more that can be done, but I think it's it's in its early days, but we're going to see a lot more of this, I think. 
Right, and finally this week, it's time to move to The Times, where uh, actor Reese Ifans didn't exactly see eye-to-eye with Janice Turner, his interviewer. It ended with Ifans, you'll remember him from films such as Notting Hill and uh, other stuff, telling her to fuck off, adding, I want to end this interview now, I'm bored with you, bored, bored. Uh, that's Ifans speaking, uh, uh, not me. Now, I had a... I gotta say, I had a troublesome hour in a hotel room with uh, with Jay Middlemiss once. Uh, once. <laughs> the, haven't the, we all, John? Haven't we all? The memory burns bright. I'm sure it does for her too. Um, went back to the Radio Times. They said, "Was there an angle?" I said, "Probably not." But uh, first up, uh, Lisa, did you see the interview and uh, anything to compare in your in your your media um, career? I Maybe did chat from Iceland once. No, uh, carry on. Well, I did once interview an American director who was um, about seven feet tall or so he seemed. He was massive and I think used to be a basketball player. And he uh, was very unhappy at my question about uh, his influences and, and, you know, his inspiration. And he said, you know, what kind of stupid question is that? What inspires me? How dare you ask what inspires me? My dog. And that was that. Was that. And uh, from the, that point on, uh, it was pretty much over. That was about 10 minutes in, so not good. Oh my God, how do you recover from that? Yeah. Mm, well, and that was on film as well. So actually, in, interestingly, in the same way as Janice, we sort of turned that into our advantage and we edited it to make him look like the idiot he was. So. <laughs> <laughs> and let's hope he's listening. Yes. Uh, well, Jason, that's a good point in the sense that a better a terrible interview than a sort of, you know, slightly mediocre rambling one. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the whole sort of press junket thing, it just sort of highlights, you know, if you catch, if you catch the act, you know, actor in the, in the wrong mood, then yeah, then it can all disintegrate fairly quickly. Uh, I mean, I think it was obviously this, the whole process was spoofed in Notting Hill, wasn't it, quite you know, a few years ago. So everybody, well, journalists and PRs, you know, you, we all know what the game is, but, you know, obviously it relies on, uh, particularly on the, on the talent to, uh, to play the game. And uh, yeah, and then sometimes when they don't, in that, as in this case, then... Uh, then the results uh, are more entertaining anyway for the reader probably but uh... I had a tough encounter with a, a certain Radio 2 DJ who uh, in fact the interview never came to pass after it was put to him that he might want to chat to me and I think uh, he, I think he just sort of dismissed me with a, in, a, in a four letter word Jason but I think he got me confused with someone else possibly well, I, li- I, li- <laughs> I like to think so really? naming no names on the part of the DJ or the person he might have got me confused with but uh, any tough any tough gigs Jason in your um, back catalogue my back catalogue well uh, yes well it's quite a long time since I uh uh, well, this is any interviewing, but I, I, on my one and only press junket to LA, for reasons which probably will become apparent, I was interviewing uh, Matt LeBlanc on the set of his long-lost sitcom, Joey, uh, and I knew oh, things yes. were going badly when, when he started taking the piss out of my, uh, out of my shorthand, that my, uh, my career as a celebrity interviewer sort of <laughs> came to a juddering halt there, really, but... Uh, but, but it's interesting, isn't it, how, you know, we're looking at, we're blaming Reese, but I do think there's a, well, we don't know the full story, do we? Because the interviewer could have been quite annoyed at the fact, and, and rightly, I can see how this is irritating, at the long list of things you can't talk about. And so might have gone in there a bit grumpily, and, you know, he's picked up on that, and they just haven't gone on off to a very good start. So, you know, I do think that part of your job as a journalist is to soften people up and get things out of them when they you know they don't want to talk and that includes their attitude and if they're a bit grumpy then you know talk them round well send us your disaster interviews or let us know about them on the uh, on the media talk blog of course or you can tweet me at john plunkett 149 but for now my thanks to lisa campbell and to jason deans this week on the guardian audio edition 
Gary Young writes that hypocrisy lies at the heart of the trial of Bradley Manning, and George Monbiot gives a very personal reaction to the murder of April Jones. Also in our audiobook review, we examine appetite with Lionel Shriver's novel Big Brother and Jay Rayner's exploration of the food industry, A Greedy Man in a Hungry World. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud, iTunes and Audioboo. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. It's time to talk technology now, and I'm delighted to say I've been joined by none other than The Guardian's Head of Technology, Demaya Kish. How that's are a, you? That's a finely honed radio voice you've got there, John Plunkett. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I pronounce little, little. Little. And the Beatles. Yeah, which is fine if you're talking about Rod Little. But not any other time. And first up this week, Jemima, uh, Maria Miller, uh, I see here, Culture Secretary, is getting tough with the internet service providers. She wants them to crack down on web porn and some of the uh, politically extremist stuff you can find on the internet. The catalyst for this was Mark Bridger, who murdered five-year-old April Jones and had a pretty horrific library of material, some of which was legal and just not very nice, and other stuff which was very illegal and horrific. Um, images of child abuse. This has pushed people to say, well, why is this stuff so easy to get online? There are two elements to this. One is the consumer web. Google, for example, is the web to most people. It's their starting point, the gateway to the internet. Google says that it does a lot of work removing... It can't block websites, but it can remove links to websites from its search index, so it's much less visible. It bases the removal of those links on work that is done by the Internet Watch Foundation. But we have discovered there's only five people at the Internet Watch Foundation working on this, and Google only gives them £20,000 a year. Facebook, £10,000 a year. So for a massive problem that Google, you know, waxes lyrical about, you know, its dedication to the cause, that's pathetic. How much would it cost to do something? I mean, we're talking millions and millions of pounds here well, to actually the, tackle this problem in any sort of fundamental this way. This is the flip side of the thing, is that if you look beyond the easy consumer web, if you look at the dark web, people exchanging content on P2P file sharing sites, to find out what the material is that they're sharing, you would have to be doing very fine-grained analysis of that content. And you're looking basically at a system like they have in China. They have 100,000 people, it's estimated, monitoring content that is flowing through their networks and they, they're still not controlling everything. And big companies like Google have, have resisted uh, this sort of pressure to take such a sort of micro approach to this sort of thing in the past. Absolutely. They? There are very significant freedom of speech issues about that and people quite rightly don't want their, their content to be analysed. But there must be a technological solution to this. As I have said publicly and written many times, look at the talent and the resources that these companies have at their disposal, they could and should be doing far more. And this is why Maria Miller is meeting with them. Um, And it's interesting that hot on the heels of the tax issue where these companies are feeling pressurised that they need to do something visible to be more engaged, this is an issue where they can really make a difference. And a lot of the pressure has come, it has to be said, from the Daily Mail, which has made this really a sort of front-page campaigning issue. Yeah, they love this kind of stuff, don't they? Uh, And, you know, it's good... It's good for them. Uh, it's it's a good kind of campaigning human issue. So uh, it, it fits very well with them. Um, the wider picture is that 
obviously don't like talking about this, especially because we're English, but the kind of sexy elephant in the room is porn of any variety at all. And all of the the kind of legal entertainment industry behind that is as much as 25% of all web searches to indicate how significant this is. So a quarter of all web searches across the board are in some way porn related? Depending on the estimates, 15 to 25%, 25 at, at most. But when you walk into the lobby of Google's HQ in Silicon Valley, you see in real time Google searches that people are doing right now. And interestingly enough, I suspect that's slightly edited not to show that 25% of searches. Okay, well, we'll wait and see what Maria Miller asks of the companies and, and what they say in response. But um, despite that sort of critical mass of opinion and this idea that, yes, you've got freedom of speech on one hand, but you've got this sort of freedom from this hate material on the other, it feels like there's a long way to go before we see any sort of substantial movement, I think, on this from, from, from the ISPs. And- it's an almost insolvable problem, not least because of the volume of content out there. And Mark Williams Thomas, who is very well known as a child protection expert in this area. And did the ITV Savile documentary. He did the ITV Savile documentary, indeed. And he worked uh, with SEOP, the, the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Unit, for years, has said that the software does exist to, to try and recognise, if not faces and people, then certainly locations that can try and identify people to get some prosecutions in this area, even if they could identify every single person in this country who has either made, shared or distributed material showing child abuse there's not enough space in our prisons and the criminal justice system couldn't cope so there's a far bigger cultural and societal issue that needs to be addressed there and this goes way beyond the internet industry itself okay well thank you for that next up jemima is uh, yahoo and tumblr yahoo spent 1.1 billion dollars on tumblr uh, last month What's it going to do with it? Yahoo has been trying to make itself a media company forever. And there are a few factors to this. One is that it's an interesting differentiator between Yahoo and Google, when Google has clearly got search nailed with a you know, 60 70 80% market share in, in most significant markets. The other is about advertising, because Yahoo has traditionally been very strong in advertising and the cool thing on the block now is native advertising, so really meaningfully embedded and targeted ads for a kind of cool user group, actually, is what they're buying with Tumblr. Uh, the stats are thought to be about 30 to 50 million active users a month, which is pretty healthy considering that those are users who, they're not fleeting users. People who have a Tumblr normally give it quite a lot of love. And they're cool. Apparently so. Well, they are at the moment. The thing is, the internet, as Rupert Murdoch discovered, is consumers are really fickle. So if the cool kids think that Yahoo isn't cool enough, and to many it's not because it represents, you know, a big kind of mainstream consumer audience and it's a bit tacky, frankly. It's the 90s. It's pretty 90s, isn't it? Then they're very likely to move on. And where would that be? Yahoo has said very clearly that it's going to let Tumblr carry on being independent and retain its cool and it sort of it has had to say that so that the cool kids will stay but we shall wait and see um a one-line answer if you will jemima but to save our listeners who are frantically googling tumblr now to find out what it is yeah well don't put an e in it that would be my first tip <laughs> tumblr um it's halfway between an old-fashioned blog and and twitter but often very visual and it's very very easy to post so if you are writing a bit of Uh, I don't know, a gig review you've just been to or you're filming a video or you're recording some audio, you can then send it straight from your phone and post to your Tumblr. And what are these uh, 
what are these rumours about another two-syllable? Uh, Hulu. Exactly. Thank Hulu. you. Yahoo is rumoured to be bidding, and, and there are a few companies interested in Hulu, which is um, it's just in the US at the moment, but it's uh, a TV online TV catch-up service, which is quite cool. But the bidding is sort of edging up towards a billion dollars now, and analysts are starting to say it's not really looking all that clever for Yahoo. Again, it will be an advertising play for them. But online TV, frankly, is a bit of a mess at the moment. There's huge demand, huge potential, but there's a lot of roadblocks from people like the smart TV manufacturers, broadcasters themselves. There's a confusion about where the centre of that TV experience is going to be. Uh, so it's a dangerous area for Yahoo to get into. Too many platforms. you got you know, Hulu in the US, you've got uh, Netflix, of course, and you've got Amazon getting into it, and we've got... Yeah, 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 uh, UView, whatever that is. And it's really confusing for consumers. On top of that, you've also got smart TVs, which kind of seem to be the future and seem to make sense for consumers who are looking to upgrade their TVs. But the experience of the internet-powered apps is atrocious. Well, not to go into it too much, but there's a real estate uh, war going on. Uh, who controls that internet experience on your TV? And the manufacturers don't want to let any of these kind of internet content companies have too much control over that. So the experience at the moment is anything but smart. Well, a topic we should return to in the future. And something else that isn't very smart is the clock on the BBC's online homepage. Oh, God, this is so annoying. This this is chronological correctness gone mad, I decided. <laughs> this came from a complaint of somebody who uses the BBC website that the clock wasn't always right. Like an old-fashioned uh, kind of analogue clock that you used to get before school's yes, programming. A, a, yeah. a little picture of a clock on the website, uh, which for some reason was then escalated to the BBC Trust's standard and committee rule, or, you know, was analysed by the, their the committee top. rules and fell foul of accuracy guidelines. This is because the, the clock isn't always because correct. Because the yeah. clock isn't always correct. But the only time that clock would be incorrect was if the clock on the user's computer is incorrect. So... <laughs> it's the user's fault, not the it's, BBC's, is it's what you're saying. It's basically the user's fault. They can't, if when they're building a website, they can't power the clock from some central world clock. Big Ben, for Because instance. we have this thing called time zones. So different people around the world, they can't geolocate you and then present your time because geolocation is notoriously inaccurate. So the easiest way to do it is to show the time that is showing on that computer. So... Some complete numpty has complained that the BBC clock is wrong. And it's a sign and of the seriousness with which the BBC takes these complaints. that They've rolled over and, and said, yes, you're right. No, it's also a sign of a lack of literacy in how websites are actually built and run. Digital balls, you might say. They should yeah. have told him to stick his clock. They should have told him to just correct the time on his computer and that would have fixed the problem. Maybe they could have complained to his editorial complaints unit. Yes. And before you go, Jemima, we did touch on this last week, but in your absence, uh, much excitement. The Guardian's new coffee shop in Shoreditch, which I was hoping to come to tonight. Yes. Or last night, depending on when you're listening to this. Or last week. Well, we have decided that uh, this news business is a bit too risky, so we're not going to be a news organisation anymore. We're going to just open coffee shops around the world. Well... That's what you might have thought, I think, if you were reading Twitter. Actually, it's an experimental marketing project to engage people with The Guardian's content and to create a real-world kind of public space that represents The Guardian, which is an interesting idea in itself. So we're just trying it out. We're at Box Park in Shoreditch, and we have a beautiful, beautifully designed space. We're working with local providers who have built 
some very beautiful furniture. Uh, New Espresso, who are a tiny startup in London. So we're working with local suppliers. It's a very interesting space. We're going to be doing all manner of editorially based projects in there, interviews and stitch and bitch and meet the CEO. Maybe even media talk. Maybe even media talk. Well, we're definitely doing tech weekly there. So media talk as well, please. But... It's a, an experimental space, so I, I can't really tell you what's going to happen in there. We're just going to try some stuff out, and why not? Because if you're not trying new stuff, then you're not doing it right, I think. Excellent. Well, we shall experiment there very soon. Jemima Kish, as ever, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. It's time to talk television now with The Guardian's TV editor, Rebecca Nicholson. And it's a Vicky Frost there. It was like a flashback. It's, it's a flashback to a former time. I think Sorry. she's still definitely in Australia. I hate flashbacks in TV drama. I always sort of inwardly sigh and occasionally outwardly sigh, especially in Mad Men when it goes back to a Merlin lookalike. Well, young we've, we've had three weeks of Mad Men flashbacks. Yeah. Well, flashbacks slash drug induced hallucinations. But yeah. they seem to be going heavy on it this season. I can take enough of that. I'm okay with it. I think the last. We weren't going to talk about Mad Men, but let's talk about Mad Men. Yeah, I've just. I think I've done the, it. Uh, the last three episodes have been outstanding episodes and I didn't expect that from the start of the series which was quite slow but I think Mad Men does tend to do that anyway but three real crackers in a row it's been great it's been a corker well on form I vote it should get an Emmy I vote yeah that two and a Golden Globe yes and a BAFTA all of them and together in a bag uh, but first up this week all human life is about to be covered in the next seven and a half minutes uh, because we start off with Game of Thrones where it was a big week it was a huge week. I think the biggest week in its history, even more of a shocker than that thing that happened at the start, at the end of the first series that was a big shocker. Yeah, I'm trying to do this without spoilers. I don't know if it's possible. It's hard, isn't it? It's really hard. But we can try and talk around it. So big stuff happened. Big stuff happened. And it went mental on Twitter. Well, I'm, I kind of just wanted to make sure everyone was okay because I, it was a very traumatic thing to do. As you know, the nature of the job means that often we watch TV in an office, which is a slightly strange viewing experience, but I, I had to watch this before it was broadcast in the office. And I just sat at my desk with my head in my hands, feeling really <laughs> very distraught. I get that watching Bake Off. <laughs> I got that a little bit watching Love and Marriage, which we'll, we'll discuss in a little while. People who read the books knew what was coming. This is uh, an event called The Red Wedding, which you can probably guess that bad stuff happens. It's not just the colour of her dress. And so people who read the books knew it was coming. I have not read the books. I did not know it was coming. It was quite a big cull of uh, major cast members. And it was a real shock. And it was so gruesome. I think that's the way... The way they did it really shocked people. And even by Game of Thrones standards, when you have a lot of gruesome things happening week on week, it was horrendous. So very upsetting. Twitter actually broke halfway through the UK transmission of that it episode. It broke Twitter. I think it broke. I think the weight of people's tears probably broke <laughs> Twitter. I remember being very shocked when there was a massacre in a wedding uh, in the Colbys, I think. I think I've got that right. Uh, Dynasty spin-off, yeah. which I'm not sure you I remember. Never, I never face, saw it. So. But back then, I had no Twitter to go on to to talk about it, so I just... Uh, so what did you do? I think CB I, radio. <laughs> <laughs> I think I chatted with my imaginary friend. But it, <laughs> it turns out they'd... Uh, Turns out she'd gone out. Uh, but Game of Thrones, one more episode next week, is one that right? One more episode, if, if everyone's ready for it, if but people it feel like out. they can take it, because it, it's a lot to deal with. It turns out it was all a dream <laughs> next week. 
Twitter goes mad again. Uh, okay, second up this week. Uh, let's let's uh, ha- let's have a low and then end on a high. So I'm going to suggest we talk about uh, Love and Marriage on yes. ITV. It's unfortunate that it's a low because it's got a good cast. I tend to love anything Alison Steadman does, and she's good in this. But this is an ITV drama, and it seems as if they've tried to make a cross between Last Tango in Halifax, which obviously did well, got the BAFTA. And there's a slight modern family element to it in which the cast sit on sofas and can deliver it to camera bit. And it just just doesn't work at all. It kind of looks like an Ikea ad from 20 years ago. It's a really bizarre setup and it it really jars. It doesn't feel like it fits with this kind of comedy drama. It's a jaunty score, bumbling characters, and then a really sad, devastating thing happens. And the tone is just so off. It doesn't really know what it wants to be. And I think Last Tango in Halifax worked really well because they didn't really care that it was a drama about older people. They didn't try to make it appeal to everyone. They just made that drama and did it well. And everyone watched it as a result. But this one, it seems as if they've taken that and then tried to appeal to all age ranges and it's diluted it. It's just very messy. Feels like a drama by committee almost or a commission by committee. Yeah, a dramedy. A dramedy. A comma. Yeah. And it's, so it's part docuzote and part kind of just traditional drama, but... Uh... Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's a real mess. It doesn't know what it wants to be. I think it's a waste of a good cast as well. So I'm, there, there are hints that it's got potential, but I think it needs to really sort itself out and drop this to camera business. No need for it. Well, much more exciting and also on ITV, um, to, to reassure all employees and uh, enormous fans of ITV listening, there was a, a fantastic new drama, which is uh, a bought-in drama, has to be said, from America, called The Americans, yes. appropriately enough. I have been on the hunt for a new homeland since season two finished, and I think this may well be. (laughs) Well, I would argue that it's perhaps even less subtle than Homeland season two, which is saying something. It's a crowd pleaser, isn't it? It's a crowd pleaser, but I really enjoyed it. It's big. A lot happens. I like that they open with a big bombastic kidnapping to the strains of Fleetwood Mac's Tusk, which is deranged anyway. And uh, it just kind of ramps up the tension, it keeps the tension going. And it does it well. And that's what I liked so much about Homeland is that you spend half of it again kind of watching the TV from behind the cushion and, you know, you don't know what's going to happen when. And I felt like that with this, there's a scene when the FBI agent is searching. Well, we should sum up quickly before he tells that. Yeah, so yeah. the setting is uh, two uh, Oh, yeah, undercover... I, I've just assumed that everyone's watched it. You don't need to know. Yeah. Do you want to sum up? Well, I'll tell you. So the Americans, <laughs> is, uh, it's a drama. Uh, the elevator pitch coming up. So two undercover uh, Soviet agents living in America, pretending to, Amer- to be Americans. They've got a couple of kids. Uh, perfect home life. Uh, but it turns out, in fact, they are occasional uh, killers uh, and uh, and uh, spying on all and sundry. And guess what? Only an FBI chap comes and moves in next door. So has he been sent there? Does he know they're undercover? Or is it just a flipping great coincidence? Who knows? But in the meantime, the bodies pile up. Uh, all sorts of badness goes on. There's um, lots of skulking around. And there's Phil Collins in the air tonight. And Yeah, Phil Collins. Because it's set in 1981. So, I mean, you need that there, really. It's... Rebecca Nicholson, over to you. <laughs> so your highlight was, you were going to tell me. Well, not so much a highlight, it's just an example of the way they do tension well. FBI agent searching the boot of the car in which, uh, for many days, they'd held a prisoner and just got rid of him. And that's all very tense. And then, then KGB spy husband is actually skulking around the corner with a pistol. And that bit I was cushion up. Very tense. I was but almost it well. cheering at the screen, but yeah. it was quite late on a Saturday night. It was very late. Your neighbours might have had complaints. I'm pretending I, I watched it live and wasn't actually in bed at that time. I watched it the next <laughs> day. 
Uh, no, it's very good, I think. I'm very excited about episode two. So, you know, who thought that? Uh, a must-see US drama on ITV. These things don't always go together. No. And Matthew Reese was good, but his partner in crime, Kerry Russell, even better. I think she's got a slightly more developed character. She's, in the first episode, Matthew Reese's character wavers slightly on his allegiance to um, the motherland, but she very much doesn't. And she gets a couple of the funniest scenes in which their kids come home from school full of worries about the, the Red Menace and how inferior Russia is to the US. And you can see her bristling and that provided a bit of levity, which I thought was very good. She's great. And my one complaint was uh, Matthew Reese's character's use of the word medal as a verb when he was talking about uh, some Olympics uh, tomfoolery. Is that an American thing? Well, I think, you know, uh, back in 1981, 31 years ago, I'm not sure it, it had evolved. Oh, I see. The controversial route uh, evolution from noun to verb, yeah. I, I think, was, you know, hadn't even begun. And I, I watched it with a Russian, and apparently um, they wouldn't have knocked back the shot of vodka in bed. They would have sipped it. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, producers, if you're listening. Not too late to change it for the DVD. <laughs> uh, well, that's all for this week. My thanks to Rebecca Nicholson. Thank you very much. And to all our guests, who were Lisa Campbell, Jason Deans, and Jemima Kish. You can have your say on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog, or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Come on, you know you want to. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.